podcast is brought to you with the support of Caseload from De Novo Business Intelligence. It was one of the most shocking cases of recent years. One of the biggest police hunts known to Scotland and 20 years on, a murder trial without a body. On this week's special episode of the Hay Legal podcast, an in-depth conversation with Tommy Ross QC, one of the defence counsel in the hit BBC documentary Murder Trial, The Disappearance of Margaret Fleming. It's an unusual opportunity to see the inner workings of a Scottish court, while the case itself exposes worrying failings in social services. We hear some insights as to what it's like to be part of a televised, media-sensitive case. Occasionally you'd be conscious if you moved from your seat over to where you were asking the questions and the cameras would move. I suppose in the back of your head you're thinking, if I do something really daft and it gets picked up, you know I'm never going to be allowed to forget it. Six months later, your relatives and your pals are going to be sitting watching it. Tommy shares his key points relating to the case. I think a lot of people focus on the fact that she has never been found. Certainly we focused on it. My suspicion is they were probably under surveillance. Well, the fireman said that he smelled burning flesh and, and you couldn't be left with any impression other than he just got it all completely wrong. We also hear some of the stranger aspects of the case. Really depends on things done or said by the accused. The jury must have taken the view that they sent letters to themselves. So it became a trial about all the things that he had already said. You know, the starting point is if that's damaged, well, it's already been done and we're trying to work our way back from that. Tommy also shares some thoughts on the future of televised cases in Scotland. I suppose it will depend ultimately on how much it costs them and how much they're able to raise from it. And I can't give you any figures on this, but I know it was extremely expensive. The company themselves have already been awarded a couple of BAFTAs. It depends on them maybe selling it abroad or selling it to Netflix or something. So, A lot coming up in this week's show, so let's begin. Tommy, thank you so much for joining us on the Hay Legal Podcast. We're going to discuss the tragic and unusual case of uh, the disappearance of Margaret Fleming, which was featured in uh, the murder trial programme that we recently saw on the BBC. I wonder, could you start by telling our listeners how this trial came to be selected? Yeah, in, in a way it was a bit of a coincidence because the production company were already working with the major investigation teams at Strathclyde, sorry, Police Scotland, in relation to a number of murder inquiries. This was only one of the murder inquiries that they were working on. While they were working on it, they decided to explore the possibility of making an application to the court to be allowed to film the trial proceedings. I suppose in the knowledge that they already had quite a lot of footage in relation to the police investigation that it would be a bonus if they were permitted to televise part of the trial. And, and from that, it sort of grew arms and legs and it ended with a situation where they recorded every day of the trial, which was about 60 days. So that went from a one-hour documentary as part of a longer series to a two-hour standalone documentary in which they had... 67 minutes of trial footage uh, over a 120-minute documentary. Yeah. And it's been tremendously well-received, the programme. 
Um, how do you feel about what was depicted in the two episodes? It's a difficult question to answer because I think that the way the production team put it together was fantastic and uh, I think it could have struck the right tone. They didn't sensationalise it and obviously they dealt with it sympathetically, which included focusing on Margaret Fleming and people who knew Margaret Fleming. So, oh, that was fine. The, the only caveat I would put forward is that the trial, as I said, lasted for 60 days or thereabouts. I checked with them and they recorded 6,300 minutes of footage and showed uh, 67 minutes. So for every minute that you saw on the documentary, there were about 99 minutes that you didn't see. And it's been pretty clear from speaking to people since it was broadcast that some people have formed a very strange opinion of the case, which they certainly wouldn't have had if they had seen more of it in the courtroom. Yeah. And in terms of it being televised, how how did that play out for you? Did it have any impact at all, do you think, on proceedings? I think you forget about it quite quickly. The, there's so many things you have to do for a trial starting. You're really concentrating on other things day one of the trial. I suppose in the back of your head you're thinking, if I do something really daft and it gets picked <laughs> up, you know, I'm never going to be allowed to forget it. And it's a bit off-putting to think that, you know, six months later, your relatives and your pals are going to be sitting watching it, you know. So I don't remember ever thinking that during the trial because it just became, like anything, it just becomes kind of normal. And I was more concerned after it because once it's been recorded and you have absolutely no control over what's edited out and what's edited in, it could give quite a false impression. And uh, I think we're all concerned about that. that if you had you know, said something about daft or even, you know, did something that people might think was inappropriate, you know, making a face at a witness or something like that, then, uh, you know, we, we didn't have any right to have any of that edited out. Also, in terms of the sort of interludes, when they see what people will say, you know, when that witness, when witness X said that and you saw your expression... Now, I don't know that was a response to what the witness said. You know, like, it, no, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't particularly concerned about it during the trial. But then when they said, right, it's going to be broadcast in this day, obviously there's an anxiety because you, you've got absolutely no idea what they're going to select. And uh, it's also quite hard. I mean, they never showed one cross-examination, you know, I mean, cross-examinations get a beginning, a middle and an end, you know, if it's been done properly and they just go in, take two questions and but they don't have time to do that. So Yeah, I mean, there could have been 10 episodes of this yeah. programme, if yeah. not more. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly it's the norm that uh, in the High Court the public benches are often empty yeah. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly you have a situation where you know there's going to be a massive audience for this albeit coming in through uh, a televised programme but the, the the interest in the programme has been really significant Yeah, I, I mean there's two levels to obviously people who have never ever been in court and I think it's really useful for people who have never been in court to see a documentary like that uh, for a number of reasons 
principally because they see that people are treated decently and not, the lawyers are not walking about shouting and bawling at people. And it's different for lawyers. And, and I made the point when speaking to students about the programme the other week that there's no substitute for coming to the court. You know, if you're trying to learn, this programme is not really going to be much help to you, you know, because you would really need to see the whole package, even if you were only there for a day. You would see a complete cross-examination probably. You might, if you go on the right day, you might even see the three speeches by the lawyers. You know, you might see all of that. So it's of interest and it's useful, but you would need to have 10 times more coverage of any case before it would really educate people properly as to what goes on. Mm. Yeah, if it's in its entirety. Yeah. Um, it was an unusual case. Yeah. It was, un, it was unusual principally because Margaret Fleming had never been found. So it was, it was very difficult for them to prove that she was dead. I think most people who had any knowledge of the case took the view that if the two accused had chosen to exercise their right of silence or, or even if they had said that she had left in 1999 and they didn't know where she was, it would have been extremely difficult for them to have got the case uh, beyond the no-case-to-answer stage. That wasn't the situation we were dealing with. Back in uh, 2016, they obviously gave an account that Margaret Fleming had effectively run away out the back door when the police were at the front door. They had consented to an interview with a BBC journalist in which they made a number of claims. They had met, which didn't feature in the documentary, a a freelance press journalist who had taken certain information from them. They had completed, Avril Jones had completed benefit forums in which they made claims about Margaret Fleming's state of health. They had made various remarks to different police officers at various times, ending with an interview which did feature in the documentary in which they made claims. And that enabled the Crown really to take a strategy that we can show that these people have repeatedly told lies about Margaret Fleming and why would they be telling lies about Margaret Fleming if there was nothing suspicious about their conduct? So... People, I think a lot of people focus on the fact that she has never been found and certainly we focused on it because we we said to the jury, well, how do you know that she won't turn up next week and if you've convicted and she then turns up, you know, how will will that look? But uh, really, really unusual case. I don't think there'll ever be another case like it. But in addition to all of that, it was vast, you know, I, I, I noted that uh, by the time the case started, there were 578 Crown witnesses, there were 570 documentary productions, there were label productions, you know, there was a lot of material that had to be considered to prepare for it. And uh, then the trial itself it lasted about 30 days or thereabouts. So unusual for a whole number of reasons and mostly unusual because it was televised from start to finish. And would you consider this one of the strangest cases you've been involved in? Well, at the moment it's the strangest case because, you know, it's unusual to become 
when I when you're doing your job in a generally in a private forum, the doors are open in the court, but nobody really comes and so you're doing your job in a sort of bubble with other lawyers and judges and court staff and all that. It's really unusual when people who you've never met start coming up and talking to you and people who you haven't heard from from 30 years start emailing you and saying, I see you in the telly and all that. I don't think you could ever be prepared for that. So whatever happens in the the future, uh, I'm never, ever going to forget this case. But leaving that upside, it's also a very, very unusual case but in most of them, there's somebody has given evidence they actually witnessed a shooting or they heard people say we're going to have to get rid of him because of this or that. I mean, it's really unusual when there's nothing like that and the entire Crown case really depends on things done or said by the accused. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And I think if you spoke to the prosecutor, he would probably agree that ultimately the main reason for convicting them in his submission was the letters. The jury must have taken the view that they sent letters to themselves. Mm. You know, that in January of 2000, they drove from Inverclyde to London and sent four letters to themselves from Dumfriesshire, which they would have driven through to get from Greenock to London, and then from London, and uh, I mean, how, how do you explain that? You know, and the, the only explanation the jury were given was that Margaret Fleming sent them. You know, and also he, Mister Kearney, had put so much information into the public domain. There was nothing you could do about that either. You know, so it became a sort of trial about all the things that he had already said. Whereas a lot of trials. You know what the accused position is, and you might take the view, well, that's only going to make things worse if you go in and say that. So we'd have to advise you that you're probably better not to give evidence, and we can argue on the basis that the Crown case is weak. You don't have that when he said so much to so many different people. You know, the starting point is, if that's damage, well, it's already been done, and we're trying to work our way back from that. So, aye, never to be repeated, I don't think. And there was the evidence of the retired fireman. Aye, that was a fantastic example of how somebody can be doing their very, very best to help everybody, but could have convinced themselves about something that just wasn't right. You know, I don't think he came in to deliberately tell lies about anything, but his position in short was that in 2005, he was driving past the house and there was a bonfire. Now, there was nothing unusual about that because there, there was a bit of a waste tip around the back of the house and you could see why he would be having a bonfire to burn pallets and various things that were lying about. But he said to the police, it was a strange smell from the fire and he associated it with burning of animals when he had been working on a farm in Canada. Now, to put this in context, Margaret disappeared in 2000 He saw the bonfire in 2005 and then he waited until 2016 to mention it to anybody. So we didn't really see the point of the Crown calling it. And and I suppose they were just thinking, well, here's another strange thing they were doing. They were in a bonfire, a big bonfire in their garden for a few days because he said it had been burning for a few days. And then (laughs) it 
surprised everybody would be coming in and, and saying, in fact, it was human flesh that was being burnt. And uh, he knew it was human flesh because he'd worked as a fireman. And once you've smelt burning human flesh, so you never forget it, you know, and there was a variety of problems in making that stick. The whole thing was really strange and I always wonder what the jury made of it, you know, because he was clearly a nice man and uh, he wouldn't have come along to deliberately mislead the court, but you couldn't be left with any impression other than he just got it all completely wrong. Yeah. Well, it was certainly a surreal aspect to the documentary. Uh, and I think as you added it with the... The way the documentary was filmed, where it showed the you know, the stunning scenery around Inverkip and then focused in on the house and its dilapidated state, and then elements of that type of evidence come into play, it certainly built a, a, a picture that was compelling if tragic viewing. And do you think this is something that we will see more of? I think they will. It, it depends. It's been very, very well received in the broadcasting community there's no doubt about that the company themselves have already been awarded a couple of BAFTAs so you would think they know what they're doing and and I know they're very very pleased with the final product so on that level they would love to do it again and the other factor and and I can't give you any figures on this but I know it was extremely expensive because they did the cameras which they used for example, had to be leased or rented or something and, you know, it it cost an awful lot of money. So I I don't know if you, you know, how much money, I suppose it will depend ultimately on how much it costs them and how much they're able to raise from it. It's probably as simple as that. And uh, that's that information, I suppose it depends on them maybe selling it abroad or selling it to Netflix or something. So, I mean, I think that's the, that, that's the only way they can get the money back on it. And if they never get the money back on it, I suppose it seems about unlikely that they would embark on it again. And the other thing, usually murder trials in Glasgow are people with knives, you know, fighting with each other outside a pub or in a house when everybody's drunk and or domestic situations, sadly, where it's quite difficult to document that because there's so many upset people. You know, this was a... A strange case because in one way it looked a bit like it's a missing persons and there wasn't any of the terrible evidence that you get in other cases, post-mortems and stuff that it would be difficult for them to deal with in a television programme without upsetting the the relatives. So it did have the feeling that it was sort of a perfect case for them to to do a whodunit where everybody at home can think, well, how can you prove this when there's no body and that kind of thing? You know, they only knew about this because they were working with the police at the time when they were working on it. So I don't know how they would find out if there was another interesting case. Then they've got to go over all the hurdles of people withdrawing consent and objecting to permission. Then they've got to raise the money to go and do it, you know, and then uh, it's got to be a success. So I don't know. I think probably they will have another go at it, but... Uh, I don't think it'll be a regular thing just because it's so expensive. Yeah. No. Yet another simply unusual aspect of a intriguing, fascinating case. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tommy. I hope you've returned to a more straightforward mm-hmm. uh, caseload than, than that case represented, but thank you very much. Okay, no problem, thanks. Thank you for listening to this Hey Legal podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. 
To hear the full CPD qualifying content, please visit haylegal.co.uk to subscribe and join our community. Or you could ask your law firm to contact us for a firm-wide subscription. Learn more, be more with Hay Legal.